Uh, I, I don't think I've ever had a, a prayer thrown at me, but it is definitely needed at the moment. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, for, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Liam. Um, I'm one of the, the ministry team here at Kenmore. Um, and uh, I've actually been off the last couple of weeks uh, just for the, the birth of our uh, new... Uh, first baby, uh, Samuel Joshua Berry, and I'm happy to announce that he's well, he's healthy, he's uh, doing all the baby things and keeping me awake. Uh, but uh, what I've discovered, um, I suppose four weeks ago now, is that uh, delivering sermons a lot easier than delivering babies. Uh, and, and Liz will be very happy that I said that. But um, parenting, on the other hand, uh, I found parenting so far is, is actually pretty similar to pastoring. Uh, there's a lot of messes I have to deal with that I wasn't expecting to. Uh, a lot of late nights, a lot of hard work, and the constant need for both God's grace and lots and lots of coffee. Uh, so it's, like, it's honestly like I never left church at all. Uh, but, but look, if you've got your Bible with you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17 tonight. Acts chapter 17. Uh, we're, we're jumping back into our verse-by-verse uh, walk through the book of Acts. Um, and we, we've had a bit of a, we've had some awesome guest preachers over the last couple of weeks, but uh, they've sort of been jumping in and out and doing their own sort of messages. So uh, I'll start off tonight by giving us a little bit of a summary of where we're up to, just remind ourselves of the story of the book of Acts. Uh, and then we'll be jumping into, as I said, Acts chapter 17. And uh, just one last word of warning. I haven't preached in six weeks. I'm running on six hours of sleep. This message could either have an extreme anointing on it from God and finish in the next 25 minutes. Uh, I don't know, maybe we'll be here for the next two hours. We'll just have to uh, buckle in and see what happens. Uh, All right, so Acts chapter 17. Uh, Where where we're jumping into things, we are 20 years into the life of the early church. Uh, That although it doesn't look like, and we we often forget this, uh, a lot happens over the course of the book of Acts. Uh, So at this point in time, the church has moved from really a ragtag group of nobodies uh, to a bona fide religion that has uh, reached out to to all of the known world. Uh, That just like Jesus promised it would, it's gone from Jerusalem and then it went to Judea and then Samaria and already it is reaching the ends of the earth. Uh, That at this point there are churches in places like Ethiopia and Antioch and, and all over the Greek mainland. Uh, and a lot of those churches, especially those uh, sort of a- across the Greek mainland, they were planted by this man called the Apostle Paul. Uh, you may have heard of him. He's written, he wrote most of the New Testament. He's a pretty big deal. Uh, he, he's the Apostle to the Gentiles and really one of the, the main reasons the church grew as fast as it did. Uh, and, and so what the last couple of chapters of the book of Acts we've been working through have been about is really just following along with Paul's story. Uh, that, that we've seen him go from a persecutor of the church, someone who is uh, literally having Christians executed for their faith, to uh, a, a pastor and now a church planter, uh, all for, for the sake of the gospel and this amazing uh, good news that Jesus has. Uh, and so where we are right now, Paul is at the tail end of what we call the, his second missionary journey. So uh, he's in, in Greece, he's uh, visiting all the, the churches they planted in the first missionary trip, uh, as well as bringing the gospel to a whole bunch of new people. Uh, but honestly, this first, the second mission trip, it, it did not start well. Uh, Paul and Barnabas, another really big wig when it comes to the early church, they get into a massive disagreement. Uh, and it was so bad that uh, they decide to go in their own directions. Uh, and, and Paul and Barnabas, they both leave on mission trips, but they go in separate boats. 
Uh, but, but God, he grabs a hold of the mess of that moment and he uses it. And, you know, instead of one trip happening to, to one people group, you got two mission trips happening to two people groups and uh, new leaders like uh, Silas and Timothy, they're actually given an opportunity to step into a ministry role that they, they may not have otherwise had. Uh, so from there, Paul, he starts out on this mission trip and he goes to a little town called Philippi. Uh, that's the church that uh, Paul writes the letter to the you guess it, the, the church and the, the book of Philippians too. Uh, and, and look, we, we had some amazing preachers while I was gone, but I wish, I wish, I wish I could have preached Acts 16 when he first steps into Philippi. Uh, because uh, Paul, as we know, had been a Pharisee. Uh, and what we know about Pharisees is they would have prayed a, a very similar prayer every single day. And it went something along the lines of this. Dear Lord, I thank you that I wasn't born as a woman, a Gentile, or a slave. And he gets to Philippi, the first major stop on their second mission trip, and the first three people to get saved, a woman, a Gentile, and a slave. And, and, and I just love that, so, so maybe I'll, I'll preach a message on that one day. It is, it is too good. Uh, from there, they moved to a little town called uh, Thessalonica, which is the, where the letter to the Thessalonians was written. Uh, and they actually face a fair bit of opposition there. So uh, Paul, he leaves town and, and people are throwing stones at him. They're chasing him out. They actually follow him to the next town to make sure he just full leaves this area completely. Uh, but at the same time, God moves in amazing ways and huge crowds of people come to faith. But all that to say, a lot has happened on this second mission trip. And, and honestly... If I, if I can know anything about the, the Apostle Paul, I think he is just so excited with what God is doing. Uh, that, that's sure, there has been opposition, there have been uh, mistakes, and there's, there's been disunity in the body of Christ, but, but Paul just sees how God is moving through him in amazing ways. And he is like on the, the cutting edge of the expansion of the kingdom of God, and he loves it. And so as we jump into Acts chapter 7 tonight, and um, Paul steps into the city of Athens, that's the, the headspace I think he's in. Uh, he's excited, he's ready to see God move some more, um, and, and he is just on fire. Uh, importantly, he's by himself uh, for the first time in a while, so he's left Silas and Timothy behind, they're still in Thessalonica, they're, they're finishing off the, the little bit of uh, mission work there, and, and he is by himself. All right, Acts chapter 17, verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. All right, so let me just talk about Athens for a second. Uh, Athens is a pretty big deal in the ancient um, Greek mainland. Uh, it's not quite the, the hub. It had been a couple centuries earlier. That's moved to, to Corinth at this point. Uh, but Athens was, Athens was just a place that was renowned uh, for its literacy and its art. Uh, it held some of the most amazing buildings and architecture that the world has ever seen. It is uh, home to both democracy and philosophy. Uh, that it was actually in Athens that uh, people like Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, they, they penned their thoughts and they, they had these debates and discussions about how the world operates. And yet, despite the, the tourist value of Athens, Paul steps into this amazing city. And he doesn't see the sights. He doesn't see the history or the art. All that he can see is that this place is full of idols. 
Uh, and, and that phrase in the Greek that the city was full of idols, uh, it's actually one word in the Greek. The word is uh, kata idolos. It's a, it's a compound word. Uh, and it, it comes from two root words. So kata, which means to bring down, to cover, to envelop, or be throughout, uh, and idolos, which is where we get the word idol from. Uh, so, so Paul is saying, like, the city of Athens, it, it is absolutely smothered in idolatry. It was swamped. There was a pervasive and all-encompassing culture and attitude of, of pagan worship and idolatry within the city. And, and what we actually know from uh, archaeological evidence and uh, some contemporary writers of the time is this could not have been a more accurate description of what the city of Athens was like. Uh, that we know the city was quite literally covered in statues to the gods. That whether it was made of marble or stone or, or gold and silver, it was though every available surface in this entire city had some sort of idol on it. Uh, Petronius, a contemporary writer, said that uh, about Athens, it is easier to find a god in this city than it is to find a man. Uh, and Xenophon said, Athens is one great altar, and it is one great sacrifice to the gods. That idolatry, it was rampant in the city. Uh, and I actually did a bit of research this week, and uh, I found a list of, of some of the, the main gods that were worshipped in Athens. Uh, so we've got Athena, the god of wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. Apollo, the god of music, poetry, and art. Venus, the god of love, beauty, and sex. Mercury, the god of finance, uh, financial gain. Uh, Bacchus, the god of entertainment, wine, and revelry. That's just the party lifestyle, to put it in today's words. Uh, Diana, the god of fertility and female, of femininity and female fertility. Uh, Aesculapius, the god of medicine and healing and difficult names. Uh, <laughs> Jupiter, the god of the sky and power. And Neptune, the god of the seas and safe travel. Uh, and all of these gods and probably hundreds more, were being worshipped continually in Athens. And do you know what the problem is? I can list off uh, the, the idols that the Athenians were worshipping. I can tell you about the, the utter depravity of what was going on in this city, and, and we can all just sit here, and we can shake our head and go, yep, it's terrible. I cannot believe that the Athenians had so many idols in their life. You know, it's a good thing. We don't have to deal with that today in 2024 here in Kemal. Right? And, and look, I, I don't think anyone here is planning on, on going home and, you know, the plan for the rest of your night is to go and, and worship a little golden statue you've set up in your, your basement and sacrifice some chickens to it. I, I don't think we've got to deal with that in this context. And if that is you, please grab a hold of me at the end of the service. We, we need to sort that one out a little bit. Uh, but... The problem is, in the modern West, we, we've moved so far from this idea of, of, of statues and, and, and physical idols that uh, we, we've sort of gotten to a place of complacency about what idolatry truly is. Uh, because while Paul is actually dealing with people like bowing down before statues, that is not the sum total of what it means to have an idol in your life. That idolatry is simply when we seek to find anything from the things of this world what can only be found in God. Or when we ascribe to things of the things of this world, things that, that only can describe or belong to God. It's basically when we take the, the things of this world and we take them and we put them in like this place in our life where only God can truly belong. And so look, what, what that means is if you want to work out what the idols are in your life, 
All you really need to do is, is ask, okay, what is it that I'm treating in a way that I should only reserve for the one true God? Uh, and so I've put together, and I've preached on this before, but I've put together a list of questions that we can ask ourselves to try and bring to the surface or just reveal to us what those idols are in our life. And before I go through them, I just ask you, please, that, 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 that spirit in your, in your heart right now is going, I don't have any idols. I, I don't have anything in my life that I'm putting in the place of God. Can you please just put that to the side for just five minutes? And just be honest with yourself and answer these questions in, in a way that is truthful and let the Holy Spirit walk, uh, walk through this with you uh, because I promise that as Christians, we can fall into this trap so easily. All right, so here are the questions. What are you willing to sacrifice for? And again, don't literally think like a chicken having its throat slit at a golden statue. Uh, probably a better way to put this in our language today is what gets your first and your best? Where do you put your time and your money and your energy and your attention? Is it your job? Your relationships? Your family? Your golf handicap? Your car? Your, your ranking on Rocket League? Like, what is it? See, the truth of the matter is the idols in your life, they will constantly demand a sacrifice. And whether it is your, the, your time or your money or your relationship with your family or, or the evenings you should be spending with your kids or, or your Sundays or your quiet time or your sleep, the idols in your life will demand that you give them something. And just a bit of a word of warning, it will never be enough. And no matter how much you pour out uh, on the, the altar of that little idol, it, it will always demand more and more and more and it'll leave you in a place where you have nothing left to give and you are all empty and dried out. All right, question number two. What are your blasphemy laws? Okay, so this one takes a bit of explaining. A, a blasphemy law is just something that you're not allowed to say, right? Uh, and normally we only have these sort of rules in our life um, about things that we view as holy. So uh, as Christians, you know, we, we can't take the Lord's name in vain. It's one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, for some reason, we only think that applies to not saying OMG, but it's a sermon for a different day. Um, but, but what is it in your life that someone cannot talk about without you getting offended? What is it that someone cannot say about your lifestyle without you getting angry at them. I mean, if someone were to speak poorly of your gaming habits, uh, or maybe dislike how often you go on social media, or maybe tell you that you need to stop, you need to stop working so late, or whatever it is, how do you respond? Hello, am I on? Good. There we go. Sorry. Um, how do you respond when, when someone comes into your life and, and they say these things that, that, that you, just, you just get offended at? Because what might be happening in that moment is, is someone is actually breaking one of your blasphemy laws and you are defending your idol. All right, question number three. What is your functional saviour? See, when life gets hard, 
or when the rubber hits the road and you're stressed and you're anxious, where is it that you actually go for help? Where do you seek the, the comfort in this life? Is it the fridge? The TV? The bar, the gym, the, the, the girl at work that laughs at your jokes when your wife isn't? See, the high ground you seek in times of trouble, it reveals the geography of your heart. And the place that you go to rescue you from the pain and the suffering of this life, it can become your functional savior. And if you're not careful, it can replace the role of Jesus in your life. And then finally, what is your unforgivable sin? Uh, see, see, Tim Keller's got this uh, really amazing book on idolatry, and I actually can't remember what the name of the book is, and I didn't write it down. But uh, he, in this book, he, he says something along the lines of, when someone tells me, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself, what that means is they haven't failed God, they have failed an idol whose approval is more important to them than that of God's. So let me just ask you, when you look back at the story of your life, what are your greatest disappointments? What, what are the things that you know you've done and, and you know they are covered by, by the forgiveness and, and the blood of Jesus, but you look at those things in your life and it's like, nah, God can forgive me, but I, I can't forgive myself. And look, I'm not trying to make light of sin. Like sin is a serious issue and we should, we should look back at our life and regret the mistakes we've made. And we should regret the fact that we've fallen into sin. Sin is so serious that Jesus had to die for it. But if you believe your sin is so great that even though it is nailed to a cross, it is not wiped away, then it might just be that you've actually failed an idol that you place a little bit above God in your life. Anyone feeling, uh, conde not condemned, uh, convicted at all at this point? I hope there's no, there's no condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Uh, but, but when you look at your life through the lens of those sort of questions, and again, you're actually honest and, and you, you take them uh, as they are meant to be taken, uh, it is abundantly clear that idolatry, it is still rampant in both our society and in our own hearts. In fact, if we actually go back to that, that list of all the, the gods the Athenians worshipped and all we do is remove the name of the god and the title, it is abundantly clear that 2,000 years later, we're worshipping the exact same things. Wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Music, poetry and art. Love, beauty and sex. Financial gain. Entertainment, wine and revelry. Uh, here's one to get me cancelled, uh, femininity and female fertility, uh, medicine and healing, power and travel. The church, if we let them, these things can become our comfort. They can become the things we, we go to to seek meaning and purpose in our lives. The thing we are, we are willing to pour ourselves out for and the thing we will defend at all costs that it's new names, but the exact same gods. All right, so, so Paul is in this city and he sees this idolatry everywhere. And I think it's really interesting how he responds to what is going around him. That what we're told is that he was, his spirit was provoked within him. It doesn't say the Holy Spirit provoked him. It says his spirit was provoked. So something deep down inside of him was, was stirred to indignation at what was going on. 
Uh, in fact, the word that's used for um, provoked there, uh, that, that Luke, the author of Acts, chooses to use, it's, it's probably a little bit stronger in the original languages. Uh, the word means to be roused to anger, to be grieved, to be enraged, or full of indignation. Uh, in fact, it's such a strong word that it is hardly used at all throughout the whole New Testament. Uh, the last place it was used uh, was actually when Paul and Barnabas had that disagreement and they, they were provoked bitterly at what was happening, like they were enraged and, and grieved over what was going on. But if you go to the Old Testament and specifically the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the word is used over and over and over again to describe how God looks at the idolatry of Israel. And look, this is just me, so take from it what you would. Um, but you gotta remember, Paul is by himself at this point in the story. So there's no one there with him. No one's recording his reaction or his thoughts. So uh, what that means is in order for this to have gotten into scripture, Paul had to describe the events to Luke, the author of Acts. And I think this is the word that Paul chose to use to describe his reaction. That, that he went to Luke and he's like, Luke, it was disgusting. They, they had these idols and they were everywhere. They were worshiping them. They were bowing down before them. They were sacrificing everything they had at the feet of these things that had no power in their lives. And Luke, I was angry. I was provoked. I was enraged deep down at the soul level. So church, can I just ask you, is that how you react to the idols of this world? Is that how you react to the, the idols that are in your own heart? Like, like when you see people in your small group or in your life and, and you can tell that they are sacrificing their, their family on the altar of success and money. Does that do something down in your heart? Or if you look inside, when you choose to find comfort again and again and again in food or TV or, or how good you look in the mirror, like, does, does that make you angry? Does it upset you? Or do you just push it to the side? Do you just ignore it? Or, or even worse, do you sort of flirt with it and see how close to that line you can draw it without going too far over? So look, I, I wanna say something tonight, it's probably not gonna make me very popular, but I'll say it anyway. Tolerance isn't a biblical value. Love is. See, what tolerance says is uh, I will put up with whatever you want to do because that is the best thing for you and it makes my life a little bit easier. I don't have to confront your issues. I don't have to have an awkward conversation with you. I just get to go on with my life. And, and so you can go ahead and, and you can ruin your life. You can hurt yourself. You, you can hurt those around you. And in the name of tolerance, I'll let you do that. But love, love says I will tell you the truth even though it might damage your view of me. Love says I, I will go to you and in love I, I will say what, what you are doing is wrong because I care for you. Because I care more about who you are than how you view me. And, and I'll be careful here that there are God honoring ways of doing this and there are wrong ways of doing this. The Bible talks a lot about the fact that when we need to go to a brother and, and tell them about a splinter in their eye and, and take that splinter out, that first we have to take the log out of our own eye. 
that before we, we ever go to anyone else and say, hey, what you're doing is wrong, there needs to be a lot of introspection and uh, self-analysis and self-reflection that we deal with ourselves before we go to others. But what the Bible says is once you have done that, you go and you take the splinter out of your brother's eye. And honestly, I think this is something that we've almost forgotten in the church. That the Bible tells us we are to be sharpening each other as iron sharpens iron. But we are to be lifting each other up. We are to be encouraging each other and revealing where we fall short. Because honestly, church, sometimes we have blind spots. And the reason they're called blind spots is because we can't see them. And so we actually need someone who, who cares about, who, about us, who loves us enough that they can come to us and say, hey, what, what I think you're doing, I think it's wrong. And we need to be open to receiving that in the same spirit. All right, and so what, what Paul does is, is Paul sees this idolatry and he responds in love. Verse 17. So, in other words, because of the idolatry, in result of the idolatry, uh, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. That driven by love, Paul goes to, to both the, the religious people, those who claim they know God, and those who don't, the irreligious, and he preaches the gospel to them. See, church, the answer to the idolatry in our world, it's not to hate people. It's not to condemn their actions or, or, or to impose rules on them to make them behave in a certain way. It, the answer is to go to them and say, hey, the, the thing you're trying to find in those little G gods, the, the thing you're trying to find in the idols of this world, they are insufficient, but you will find them in the good news of Jesus Christ. That the answer to idolatry, the solution to the problem of idolatry, it is the gospel. that we need to show ourselves, we need to show the world around us that the things of this world, the idols of this world, they are insufficient. But God is sufficient. That money, sex, and power, while they may seem good in a moment, while they may promise us the world, they will fail to deliver again and again and again. But the gospel, Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, He will comfort us. He will provide for us. He will restore and give hope and joy and peace that John 10, 10 says the thief comes only to kill, steal and destroy. But I, Jesus, have come that you may have life and life abundantly. And so instead of seeking comfort in the idols of food, what we need to see is that through the gospel, Jesus is my portion. Instead of trying to find our, our pleasure in sex, what we need to see is that through the gospel, Jesus is my satisfaction. Instead of looking to, enter, uh, to entertainment to give us the happiness we need in this life, what we need to see is that Jesus is my passion. Instead of trying to find meaning in success, we need to see Jesus is my purpose. And instead of leaning on the allure of money, we need to see that Jesus is my provider. That if you grab a hold of Jesus, if you look full into his wonderful face, then the idols of this world, they come crashing down. And, and, and that, that's what Paul preaches that he goes out to the city that is overrun by idols. It's like, guys, you just need the gospel. You just need the gospel. You just need the gospel. And so look, all we're gonna do for the rest of our time tonight, and how long we got left? You guys need to listen way quicker. That was two verses. I've got like 12 to preach through. Uh, but uh, what we're gonna do for the rest of our time tonight is 
I'm just gonna walk through how Paul preached the gospel how he grabs a hold of this message of Jesus Christ and, and he uses it to show people how their idols are not sufficient. All right, so, so verse 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. All right, so, so Paul, he's out preaching the gospel. He's in the marketplace, he's in the synagogue. Uh, and these two philosophical crowds, the, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they, they hear what he's preaching and they want to know more. So the Epicureans, just to give us a bit of background on who these guys are, uh, they were known as the philosophers of the garden. Uh, and essentially what they believed is that either God or the gods didn't exist at all, or they were so distant, so far away that they had no real role or, or play in the world at all. Uh, they believed that matter had always existed and that the world was just a, a result of a, ra- a random chance and the meaningless movement of atoms. Uh, and, and what that meant is they obviously didn't believe in a creator because they didn't believe in a creation. Uh, they didn't believe there was a resurrection of the dead, so there's no judgment. And, and basically life was just a big game of chance. And so what you need to do is you need to seek pleasure at the cost of everything else. You need to leave, live a hedonistic lifestyle and just get as much enjoyment as you can. Does that sound familiar to you, to you today, church? It is the dominant culture of our world today. And people say the Bible isn't relevant. Uh, all right, so the Stoics. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were known as the philosophers of the porch. Uh, and they were probably more in line with what we would call new ages today. So. Uh, that people say, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. Um, they, uh, they, they, they believed that there were gods out there. It's just that they were an impersonal force. So they weren't, they weren't, um, they, it wasn't a single God. There wasn't like a personal God. It was just a force that lived inside of everything. Uh, so it's inside the rocks, it's inside the trees, it's inside the animals, and even humans carry around that divine spark inside of them. Uh, they held to a strong idea of fate, something akin to karma today. And they sort of believed your life is being driven in a certain direction and you can't really control that too much. And so as, the resu- uh, as a result of believing there's an impersonal force driving the universe, what they sort of came to a conclusion was, okay, well, you need to basically live within your set of values um, and you should avoid extremes at either end um, and then just be kind to people because that's the best you can do. And so these two groups, the Stoics and the Epicureans, they, they hear this message that is being preached and they go, okay, that's interesting. Let me hear more. And at first, it actually sounds like they're pretty open to the good news of the gospel. Uh, that verse 19, and they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus. Uh, so the Areopagus, that, that Greek word translates to Mars Hill. Uh, it was, it's just a, basically a massive rock outcropping. Uh, in fact, if you see behind the text, it's, that's the image of where it is today. So it's this massive place sort of on the, the outskirts of Athens. Uh, and they would go there and they'd have these councils of philosophers and they would debate what the, the morals and the, the ethics and the religion of Athens needs to be. Uh, and so it sounds like a good thing that they're bringing him there to have this discussion. And so they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For you bring some strange things to our ears and we wish to know therefore what these things mean. 
So again, sounds really positive at this point. Uh, but then Luke, the author of Acts, adds verse 21. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except the telling or hearing of something new. Uh, so look, I, I'm not going to... I'm not going to spend too much time breaking into this, but essentially what's going on here is a thing called syncretism. Uh, the blending of different philosophies, uh, religions, and worldviews. Uh, that, that basically what had happened at this point is because uh, Athens was the city of, of knowledge, and, and knowledge is important above all else, and they were, they were very tolerant. What, what happened is every time a, a new religion came into the city, they, they would bring it into what they would already believed. So they sort of somehow made it fit within their um, worldview, their philosophy, and said, okay, well, we'll add that, that God to, to our list of gods, that we can make that work. Uh, in fact, some of the, the commentaries I read this week, they, they actually said that it is possible that when, when Paul was preaching about uh, Jesus and the resurrection, they, they thought he was talking about two new gods, Jesus, a male god, and his female um, wife or consort, resurrection, because resurrection in Greek is a feminine word. Uh, but, but in any case, so Paul is preaching the gospel and he's explaining it to them and essentially all he's going to do is just show them the gospel, compare it to their idolatry. And he's going to contrast the two and show them how, again, the, the idolatry is insufficient, but the gospel is sufficient. So verse 22. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Uh, and religious, don't hear legalism in that, in that phrase. Today we probably say something more akin to they were spiritual in every way. Uh, For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. All right, so, so Paul's, what Paul's going to do here is he's going to actually meet this crowd where they are. Uh, he's going to meet them in their understanding. He's going to meet them in their idolatry. He's even going to meet them in, in their sort of pagan worship practices. And so he starts by bringing up this custom they have of erecting altars to unknown gods. Uh, and again, this is something we actually know the Athenians did, that just to cover all their bases and, and make sure they didn't miss any of these gods, uh, they would erect altars and they would inscribe them with something along the lines of, for the worship of the gods unknown. Uh, and, and so... What, what Paul does is he grabs a hold of this practice and he's like, look, you guys, you don't even know what you're worshiping. You don't even understand what, what, what this thing inside of you that is actually longing for God is. And, and I, I point that out because this is not Paul saying, look, you're really close to the truth. Let me show you how to get there. It's not Paul saying, hey, the, the way you're practicing this religion, we can make it work with Christianity. He's like, guys, you don't even understand. You've, you've got it wrong. You're worshipping something that is unknown to you. And so verse 24, uh, the God who made the world and everything in it being Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't live in temples made of man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. In other words, it's like, guys, the idols you have are insufficient, but God, he is sufficient. That those little g gods you're worshiping, they don't actually quite measure up to the one true God. You need to build them temples and you need to feed them and, and you need to have these constant religious practices to make them happy. But God is so much bigger than that. He is infinitely more than you think. He, he is creator and Lord and sustainer. And 
what Paul's actually doing here is he's directly refuting the, the Stoic and the Epicurean beliefs, right? Because the, um, they either believe that, they, they, that matter had existed forever, so there's no creator, and he's like, nah. God is so big that he actually created everything. So you guys have got it wrong on that page. And then he also makes God a single per- a person, like something you can interact with and relate with, again, breaks both of their understandings. But see, the tr- church, the truth of the matter is our idols that we have, they are actually insufficient. That they can't hold the weight of our life. That they talk big game, and we may build them big temples and, and sacrifice everything we have to them, but when push comes to shove, they will let us down. That whether it's sex or money or food or power or hobbies or, or relationships, if we put the weight of our life into them, they will overpromise and they will underdeliver again and again. But, but God, He is more than we could ever imagine. He, he, he will do more than we could ask, think, or imagine. He, he promises us that the, the very same God who created the universe, if we, we come to him, he, he will give us new life. He, he will um, do a work in our heart that he will love us and never forsake us, that he'll give us a hope and a future, that he's working all things for the good of those who love him, uh, that he can give us peace that transcends understanding and a joy that cannot be shaken, that, that all these idols we have, we go to them, but they're not enough. But God, we go to him and he gives us everything we're actually seeking. And not only that, Paul's gonna make this comparison about how far their idols are, but how close God is. That verse 26, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place. In other words, God's actually involved. Like God made one man and then he determined periods and he determined boundaries and he, he gave rules and he was actually involved with what is going on. And he did that, that verse 27, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way towards him and find him. And I just, I just love how Paul finishes this off. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. See, the, the thing about idols is they will actually always keep us at a distance. That they will promise, you know, if you just take one more step, then you will be fully and finally satisfied. That, that, that next promotion you're seeking after, that will give you all you actually need in this life. That that next girlfriend, she's going to be the one that understands you and, and makes you feel loved in the way you're seeking. That you just need one more zero in the bank account or one more home renovation or, or one more outfit, then you'll be secure, you'll be beautiful, you'll be content and happy and loved and everything you need will be there. But it's like no matter how many steps you take, it's always just one more step out there. And, and those idols will keep you at a distance and they will keep you seeking after them. And again, both of these, these groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics, they thought God was really far away. That, that either it was like um, he created the universe and then stepped back and let it run its course and, and he's not getting involved. Or else that they thought he wasn't a, a personal being at all and, and you couldn't have a relationship with him but what Paul is saying is like, look, both of these views are wrong. God is not a distant deity. He's not a faraway God sitting in the cloud, letting things just happen. He is real, he is tangible, he is personal, and he is relatable. See, again, idols will always keep us at a distance, but God is close. And look, honestly, I don't know who needs to hear that tonight. But, but as I was praying through this message and working through it, I just, I got the sense that there's someone in this room tonight and, and it just feels like God is really far. 
And at the moment, it was like, it was just a mission to come in here today. And it's been a mission for a little while. It's, it's hard to open your Bible and read from the Word. It's, it's hard to, to pray to God. It's hard to engage in worship because it just feels like God is at a distance and you can't reach Him. But church, God is closer than you think. The Bible tells us He knows every hair on our head. He's numbered them all. He, he formed us together in the secret place. That, that all the days of our life are written out in his book before we even breathe our first breath. He knows every thought you're making and every ha- ever have made. He's known every decision you've taken. He knows every failure and success you have walked through. That the Bible says, whether you ascend to the heavens or you sleep in the deeps, whether you take up the wings of the morning or you dwell in the seas, there he shall be. That God is not far. And he's also not stringing you along. Like, like the, Bible, the Bible tells us God is not a God of confusion. So if you feel like God is far right now, it's not like he's playing hide and seek. It's not like he's trying to reveal himself and then hide back into the bush or the shadows. He, he is close and he wants a relationship with you. And, and what's more, he actually meets us where we are. See, what, what Paul's gonna do now is Paul is, um, he's gonna make his argument by, by not quoting the Bible. He's not gonna quote um. Jewish thought or lean on the Jewish faith at all. What he's going to do is going to quote Greek philosophers and Greek poets. That he's going to meet this crowd in their understanding. He's going to meet it in their theology and their philosophy for how the world works. And, and God does the exact same thing for us. That verse 28, for, uh, for in him we live and move and have our being. So that's the first quote. Uh, as even some of your own poets have said, for we indeed are his offspring. That, that, that Paul's like, okay, I get your theology is wrong. I, I get you, you've based your whole worldview on these, um, the, these guys that have been dead for hundreds of years and they got it wrong anyway, but let me meet you there. Let, let me meet you where you are right now. And church, again, if you feel like God is far, not only is he closer than you think, but again, he, he meets you in exactly the place that you are right now. He meets you in your questions. He meets you in your doubts. He meets you in your uncertainty and and your wrong thinking and your misunderstanding about God, the Bible, Christianity, and faith. He he meets you in the mess of your life right now. That that God is not in love with a future version of you. He's not waiting for you to get your act together and and have your theology sorted out and all your doctrines straight before he's gonna step into your life. He comes to you where you are says, hey, again, out of love, what you're thinking is wrong, but I'm going to meet you there and I'm going to transform your thinking and take you to where you need to be. And then Paul finishes off his argument with verse 29. Being then God's offspring, we ought not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of man. In other words, if all of this is true, if your idols are insufficient, but God is sufficient. If our idols keep you at a distance, but God meets us where we are. If God is who he says he is, how in the world do you think you can fashion something made of stone or, or, or marble or gold and make that represent God? Or to put it into our language today, how in the world do you think you can look to the idols of this life for what only God can give you? And so verse 30, the times of ignorance God overlooked, 
but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so look, the band can come up as we finish this off. And I'm just so aware of the fact that a verse like this, in the, the sort of culture we live in, you know, we're all supposed to be politically correct and inoffensive and tolerant of each other. I'm not supposed to preach. I'm not supposed to preach a verse like that. Yeah? I mean, when was the last time you heard a pastor get up and give you a sermon and say, hey, everyone's going to get judged one day? And if you don't repent, if you don't turn from your idols and those stone statues, like, there's going to be judgment because of that. But church, the truth of the matter is, is your idolatry, it actually leads somewhere. And I'm not trying to make a statement about your salvation. That's not my place to do at all. But if the, if the gospel is the solution to our idolatry, then, then what that means is we're called to repent. And look, repent's like a big Christian word, Right? If you grew up in the church, you probably got a whole bunch of baggage attached to it and what it means. And if you grew up outside the church, it's like, what in the world does that even mean? Uh, but, but the word in Greek, it, it's metanoia. It's really simple. Meta means change. Noia means thinking. That repentance just means change your thinking. Ch- change the way you're, you're approaching the things in your life and um, sort of just do a U-turn. You turn away from something and you turn to something else. And it doesn't mean you feel all the things. It's, it's a head word, right? It's, it's thinking. So I'm saying you're gonna, all your feelings are gonna change overnight, but, but you just stop and you stop. How am I thinking about the world? How am I thinking about where I go to find my comfort? How am I thinking about wh- where I go to find my satisfaction or my meaning or my purpose? Like, what am I doing in my head that I need to change and point back to God? And, and look, I... I don't know what idols you have in your life. I don't know what the thing is that um, you're going to for, for satisfaction or comfort or whatever it is. But I do know if, if, if it's not Jesus, like you're, you're putting your chips on the wrong number. You're seeking it in all the wrong places. And look, I hope that as I walked through those questions earlier, like the Holy Spirit just did a work in your heart and it just brought to the surface some things that you need to work through and, and repent of and, and turn away from and turn to God. But we need to repent. And, and see, the last little thing about idols is you can't actually remove an idol because like you are made to find comfort in something. You, you're made to find purpose and meaning in something. So if you take that idol off of its little altar in your life, it's gonna put something else back in its place. And, and so when it comes to repent, what we need to do is we, we take that idol off and we put God in that place in our life. And, and so I, I just feel like there's, there's people in the room tonight that that's the business you need to do with God right now. Um, and so I was gonna invite everyone, just close your eyes and, and bow your head just for a second. Take away all the distractions, take away all the people looking at you and everything. Uh, if you tonight are aware of the fact that you've got stuff in your life, and you're looking to that thing for comfort or purpose or meaning or, or, or satisfaction and you should be finding that in God. 
I'm just gonna invite you to, to raise your hand. And, and I just do that because we're like, we're, we're incarnate beings, like an action actually has meaning to our heart. And um, if you tonight wanna repent of that, if you wanna say, God, I, I need you on that, that altar of my life. I need you to be my satisfaction. I need you to be my purpose. I need you to be my hope and my joy and my peace and my, my love and my provider. I, I need you, Jesus. Would you just raise your hand right now? So I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna pray a, a prayer over you guys. I'm gonna pray that, that God just comes and does a work in you in your heart and your mind that He leads you to that place of repentance. Lord, I, I thank you that you are sufficient, that, that you are more than enough, that the things of this world, they are, that they're just, they're just these really crummy imitations of what you actually have for us. And, and you just say, if you come to me, I will give you what you need. I will give you life and life abundant. So I just pray for every heart in this place tonight, Lord, that, that they raise their hand and say, yeah, I've got some things and I'm seeking things and they're not you, Lord, and it's leading me astray, but I want you in that place. And God, I just pray you'd come and do a work in their heart and their mind that you would change their thinking. You would change how they're approaching the things of this life. Lord, I pray that, that tonight in this place, desires would shift and that maybe addictions would be removed and, and habits that we formed would just be ripped away. And in their place, you would put new godly thoughts, new godly habits and, and new godly passions. But Lord, above all, that you would just be first in our life, Lord. That we would give you our first and our best. And just with every eye still bowed and every, uh, every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're here tonight and, and, and you don't call yourself a Christian, you don't have that sort of relationship with Jesus. Well, look, the answer to you is to repent as well. And really, it's much of the same thing. You're just gonna turn from the things of this world. You're gonna turn from whatever you're trying to find your salvation and you're gonna turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, I want you. I want you to be my everything. I want you to be my salvation. I want you to be Lord of my life. And so if you're here tonight and you wanna make that decision for the very first time, would you just raise your hand right now? And again, I do that not because there's something magical about raising your hand, it's just that, I don't know, it's something about making a decision and putting it up that it just does something in your heart. So if that is you, would you just raise your hand? All right, I'm just gonna pray. And if you just wanna um, re repeat this, this basic prayer back to me. Jesus, I admit that I need you. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for me. Jesus, I confess you as my Lord and Savior. 